Hello and welcome back to this edition of Creator Talks. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. Well, I hope you're doing well. It's been a while since my last episode. I released it early last week on Monday. Back for this week on Thursday as usual. My guest on this episode is Patrick Trahey. He is releasing a five-part series through Alterna Comics, The Twelve. And that will only be $1.50 per issue on newsprint. So, as always, little risk involved checking out the comic book. But first, you probably want to hear all about Patrick, about his creative process, what influenced him to develop the 12. Now, let me put this in context for you. I recorded this back on December 9th. And on that day, it was snowing here in Delaware. And it was also snowing where Patrick is in Chicago. So, of course, I asked Patrick all about Chicago, how The Twelve started as a graphic novel Kickstarter project, the panel that he moderated about writing a comic book at a Comic-Con in Indianapolis, and what he likes to do for rest and relaxation, his island book, Beverage of Choice, and if an action figure were made of him, what his accessories would be. Plus, we talk about his favorite band, Queens of the Stone Age, and Anthony Bourdain, at the close of the interview. And next week I'll have the details on those contests coming in 2018, so pay attention closely to my podcast episodes. So let's get started with my interview with Patrick Trahey on the 12, coming through Alterna Comics in February, here now on Creator Talks. Welcome to Creator Talks. Thank you for having me. Now, Patrick, are you based out of Chicago? Born and raised. Oh, all right. So you have some good knowledge about Chicago. So if someone were to ask you, what makes Chicago a great American city? What would you tell them? What makes Chicago different from all the other major U.S. cities, you know, L.A., New York, and Philly, besides the, the cold in the wintertime and the deep dish pizza? <laughs> it, it did just snow last night. Oh, man. What makes Chicago different? That's tough. I mean, it's weird because, you know, we're in like a global interconnected age. So everything is very interconnected and everything feels sort of the same. But I, I don't know how to make it different for everyone else, but it's home for me. It's nostalgia. It's where I grew up. You can find anything you want here. Are there things that are unique to Chicago that you like personally, that you places you like to go, restaurants you like to try out, things that if someone were to go there to visit where they should go to that you like. There's like a million places I could I could take you anywhere. Any type of food you want. Like for example, in Philadelphia, it's the Philly cheesesteak. That's their bread and butter so to speak. New York, they have the greatest bagels. Chicago, I've heard of the deep dish pizza, which is supposed to be fantastic. We get into fights with New Yorkers about it and they might insult us, call it a casserole. <laughs> it's it's fantastic. I mean, you eat it with a knife and fork. It's one of the best things ever. <laughs> I grew up on it. There's a Chicago, uh, there's a lot of Chicago things. The uh, Italian beef sandwich, which growing up was just a normal thing that we ate. And I didn't realize it was a Chicago thing until I met people who weren't from here. And then they had no idea what it was. So describe that for people who don't know about it. It's beef that's like cooked in uh, like a big stew pot with Italian seasoning and spices. And then put it on a like a baguette and you just drench it in this au jus the stew that it's been cooked in you, you got to eat it quick because the bread will get soggy but i mean i kind of like the bread soggy but you go to some places and like there's variations on it i go to a place that 
serves it on garlic bread with mozzarella, and that's like the bomb. <laughs> okay, now I'm getting hungry. <clears throat> we'll move on to your educational background. <laughs> Someone have to run out for something to eat. Uh, now you went to Loyola University in Chicago, and you studied sociology and anthropology. Was that a double major? Or was that your major minor? That was a double major. I, I had a minor in Asian studies. That all feels like a million years ago. <laughs> now, why did you choose that as your path? Okay, if I'm being totally honest, I wanted to get into video game design. That was my life as a child. And when I got to college and started doing it, I realized I hated it. <laughs> yeah, that's part of the experience is learning. Is this what you want to really do? You know, and there's time to change up. Exactly. And then so I kind of stumbled into sociology because I was taking the classes and I really enjoyed them. There was learning things I that I had never really, I didn't even really know what sociology and anthropology were. But once I started taking the classes, I found them immensely uh, fascinating. I ended up studying abroad, spent like uh, some time in Japan, was learning about the world. I didn't really know what I wanted to do with that field. I just knew that I liked the classes and thought they were really interesting. You're very lucky to get a chance to go abroad. I took a pass on that back in college, but that's some tremendous experience to get at a young age to experience another culture outside of our own and not it kind of helps be more open-minded if you've seen how someone else's culture, how they live, how their society works. It kind of was that like life changing experience. It really opened my eyes. Like you go abroad and you realize that like things that you think are ordinary are not necessarily little things like the way people ride escalators or like how people walk down the street. And it's just like, oh, like I took all those things for granted and they're not like they can be completely different. Now, you went to, as I said, Loyola. Is that a Jesuit university? It is. I went to a Jesuit university, too. <laughs> I went to St. Joe's in Philadelphia for psychology and philosophy. Major, minor, not double major. Now, do you think it's given you a particular edge as a writer studying sociology and anthropology? Even though you didn't continue that path, you went back to school to be a writer. Do you think that helped you with developing characters and building societies in your book? I do think it's helped. It's broadened my knowledge of the world, and it's it's opened my eyes in many um, uh, political ways, and I try to incorporate that into my writing. I don't know if I draw upon it in character building. I, I try to bring in elements of my politics into my writing, and I feel like that's where it comes through more. Now, you went back to college to be a writer, so you were serious about this. You went to the Columbia College in Chicago. I'm just curious, what did your parents say when you changed up, decided to go back to be a writer? They were supportive. I had finished at Loyola, and it was a few years in between going back, trying to figure out my path. And when I decided to do it, you know, my mom was really supportive. She she was all for it. All of my siblings are <laughs> creative types, so she's kind of stuck with us. <laughs> My my brother's a musician, my sister's a makeup artist, my other sister wanted to be a chef for a while. You know, she's used to us. Now, as a writer, you gather ideas from everywhere. They go into your brain, they bake, and then out springs a new creation. And I know it's hard to cite a specific source as an influence for any writer, really, because it all kind of gets brought together and you make it something that's your own. But if we really think about it, there are certain things overall in general that we do lean towards, prefer. So if you think about it, are there certain genres 
or writers who have had more impact on you than others? And who would they be, and more importantly, why? That is a tough one. Um, I pull from a pretty broad range of things. I mean, I, you know, I grew up on like the classic American nerd diet of uh, Saturday morning cartoons and whatnot, but I have a couple favorites that I always go back to. I like like really dark psychological stuff. So I my favorite movie as um, things that might be classified as horror, but lean more towards the psychological bend. Okay, so not like a slasher film. It's something that's more of a dark, scary, psychological thriller versus something that's a, a physical kind of jump scare kind of movie. Yeah, I read so much stuff like fantasy, sci-fi. I like cyberpunk, um, Blade Runner. Blade Runner's a big one, and Akira. I didn't see the latest Blade Runner. I did see the director's cut of the original. Did you see the latest one? Yeah. What did you think? I loved it. I saw it twice. I had to go back because there was so much in it that it warrants multiple viewings. Because if you just see it once, you're, you're probably missing things. That's the best kind of movie, when you can get more out of it the second, third time around. That's when you go out and you buy so you yeah. can watch it again at home. No, that's good. I'll have to put that on my list. Now, one of the things you favor in your books are post-apocalyptic environments as a setting for your stories. And I'll say just the setting because for you, it's the characters, it's the psychological relationship. That's what drives the book, not necessarily being post-apocalyptic. And as you know, there are a lot of post-apocalyptic themes out there in television, in comics. What would you say to a skeptic who thinks he or she has read them all? Why should they give your books a try, particularly the 12? No, it's tough. I come across that a lot at cons. People um, will ask me about the books and I tell them it's post-apocalyptic and they're like, oh, you know, that's really popular right now. That's really trendy. I feel like I've read it all. My stories, they're not like over the top. It's not Mad Max. You're not getting Fallout. It's personal stories. It's, you know, I mean, and, and then there's action. I would equate it more towards um, a book called The Road uh, by Cormac McCarthy. That was sort of the, one of the big influences. It's, it's post-apocalyptic, but it's, it's just ordinary people trying to get by. There is this underlying current of this secret group that sort of pull the strings, but for the most part, the stories are just ordinary people. Some people who are skeptical about the post-apocalyptic genre, I, I, I mean, I like to compare it to Walking Dead, not in the sense that, you know, there, there's no zombies, but people like Walking Dead because of the character relationships, not the zombies. Nobody, I don't think anybody goes to Walking Dead for the zombies. They go for the characters. That wears off pretty quickly after a while. That can wear pretty thin. It's really what's happening with the survivors in that environment. That's what brings people back week after week. I wanted to write a story that I felt would almost, this makes it sound like a lofty goal, but I, I wanted to write the post-apocalyptic version of Game of Thrones because Game of Thrones took the fantasy genre and got everyone invested in it. People who have never seen Lord of the Rings and don't much care for that sort of thing will watch Game of Thrones every week and go on Facebook and post about it and love it and be totally into it. <laughs> they don't care at all about fantasy. It's just, this is an amazing story. It has great characters and I love it. 
that's what I was trying to get with the 12. That's me. Guilty as charged. I mean, I don't follow things like Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, but I do follow Game of Thrones. <laughs> so, yeah, it's the whole relationships and the dynamics and the characters. One of the things about the characters that you developed is that you like to flip roles around. So, if, for example, a monster is actually good, something that appears to be a monster, someone that appears to be a hero turns out to be inside a monster of some sort. How else do you craft your narratives that kind of break character stereotypes? That technique, I, I do a lot, and I, I go back to that over and over in my stories, flipping what would be perceived as good and evil and turning that on its head. I love making monsters the good guys <laughs> and making good guys the monsters. <laughs> I, I did that maybe like subconsciously for a long time until I started seeing it in my stories and then realized I was doing it. And then I sort of amplified it for greater effect. It's kind of weird with the 12 because the, the 12 is actually something I wrote a long time ago. So I, I don't think I realized I was doing that at the time. The 12 as characters, you know, they're this like secret organization. And often people will ask me like, are they the good guys? Are they the protagonists or are they the bad guys? And I'm like, it's kind of both. There's no answer to that. It's like, it depends who you are and who is, what is your relationship to them? You know, are they the good guys? It's like asking somebody, you know, is the U.S. Army the good guys? Like, it, it, I don't know. It depends. Like, where are you from? Who are you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a lot of gray areas in this. But let's talk a bit about the 12. Now, that began as a Kickstarter almost two years ago now. And that was going through Soul Comics, which I'll talk about too. Tell me about the support. You mentioned your mom throughout that Kickstarter process. My mom is immensely supportive. She's been there the whole time, and she uh, she's always got my back. Any creative endeavor that I embark upon, she always has my back. I did the Kickstarter, and I'm pretty sure she was the first donor. And all this uh, sprang from a sketch that you did initially that kind of led to this idea of the 12. You drew one individual. Yeah. I used to draw so much, and I don't much anymore. But I did this sketch, and it was just a this sort of ominous guy in a robe with a gas mask. I imagine him standing over someone on the ground. And um, I didn't uh, intend that to be a story, but... <laughs> When I sat down to write, it just sort of came to me. I, it was like, it was just a scene. It was just these guys standing over this man. And that became the first five pages of the 12. And then from there, I've just decided to dive deeper into who they were and who that man was. And that ended up being a full graphic novel. And then the rest is, is history. I like the use of the gas mask because I always find those to be rather creepy. I mean, I always enjoyed the Vertigo series of the Sandman, because I could see how that device of using a gas mask would be very mysterious. And who is that behind there? And it disguises the voice a bit. And, and it's also used with great effect in the Doctor Who series with Christopher Eccleston. Um, and I can't remember the name of the episode. People are probably screaming at me, Chris, it's this. But And I know the second was the Doctor Dances, but there was this thing where people would be converted into a gas mask like their faces would morph and change into a gas mask i was like whoa so just that using that one imagery is very striking and i like that a great deal that definitely caught my eye it's strange like i think a lot of the times people see the gas mask and they assume that there's some sort of um ecological reason for it you know like that they wear it to protect themselves from something but really they it's more of a scare tactic that the 12 use to intimidate and to hide their identities now, you say you used to draw a lot. Now, do you still 
when you're drafting a script, you're writing things out, and you're planning to move that into a comic or graphic novel, do you thumbnail sketch out the beats, the panels? Do you kind of give your artist some idea of how it should be laid out? Or have you stepped back from that completely? I don't. I don't like to do like any kind of page layouts for an artist. I prefer to give them free reign. I like to have them um, be able to put their take on it. I try not to micromanage. I don't want to imply that that's micromanaging, but I just like to leave them with enough wiggle room to get into it and and apply their craft and enjoy it. No, I see what you're saying. I mean, some writers do have a specific vision and some artists are like, just tell me what you want because I'm here to do the job and that's fine. They, They want that type of direction. Others, like yourself, just leave it open because they see something better than what they had in mind when the artist comes back with the work. If an artist asked me to do that, I would. Um, otherwise, I would leave it up to them. I feel like most artists are, or at least the ones I work with, are good enough. They know how to do page layouts, and they're good at it. They're better at it than I am, so I'd rather have them do it. Luis Suarez, he's amazing. We started working together, it was from an ad. I just I put out an ad. And had tons and tons of responses, but his was by far my favorite. So he's in Spain, right? He is. We've never actually physically met. We chat on Facebook often, but I would love to meet him. can't afford that ticket. <laughs> That's the way it is today with a lot of writers and artists. And your letterer, Martin Magnus Perez, have you worked with him before? No, we started working because of the 12. Um, he also saw the ad that I put out, and uh, I liked his lettering, and he seemed... Uh, like the wise old sage to help guide us. Now tell me about the move. I don't even know if I can't even say if it's moved, but the 12 started with another publisher and now is going to be published by Alterna Comics. Tell me about that transition. Previously, it was self-published. Souls Comics is basically me. That's the moniker I, I came up with for my comics. And the reason I did that was because I write so many different genres and different styles of stories that I wanted something to unify them. So I came up with Soul Comics, you know, because I'm writing like post-apocalyptic stories and I have fantasy and sci-fi, I have comedy and horror. You know, I I felt like I needed something to unify them all. Um, And so I started Soul Comics. I did the Kickstarter and I started doing conventions and everything. My goal, though, was always to finish a graphic novel of the 12 and then try and find a publisher. When I hooked up with Alterna, it wasn't so much like a a move as as it was not the end goal, but it was a goal I had set for myself. So you can have wider distribution. Yeah, that's the main thing. I wanted to get it into comic stores on a wider scale. So it's going to come out one issue at a time of the five-issue series for the first arc. And that's going to be, as it is with Alterna always, on newsprint, $1.50 per issue. Now, see, if someone is a skeptic and saying, well, I've read post-apocalyptic stories before, I'd say, well, first, one, <laughs> this is a low entry price point of $1.50. You have very little to lose. So you should yeah. at least read the first issue because when I read it, if you didn't tell me it was set in post-apocalyptic America, that's not the first thing that strikes me when I'm reading the story. It's about right. survival, but it could be, you know, it's just someplace more remote in the country with a family living by themselves. I mean, it's, I didn't get that vibe right away it was all about the people in the book in the first arc about the father that's what i was going for the first issue is mainly to set up caleb's family life and to establish what is important to him and to try and humanize the family those are the main things that i wanted to accomplish in that first issue 
And I think it looks like one of your strongest works to date, so you must be pretty proud of it. Do you think that this is probably, at this point, the best thing you've put together? I actually, so I've written way more of the 12 than what is currently available. There's so many other things that I've written that are just like on the back burner because there's so much, it's a matter of time and and money to put out comics. So a lot of this stuff is sitting on shelves, but I've I've written so many things since then that I think are going to really like, I don't want to toot my own horn, but I I think people are going to like them a lot. You should toot your own horn. That's why you're here. (laughs) Tell them why they should read your stuff. Yeah. Toot, toot, toot. (laughs) This stuff is really good. I I have stuff that I've written of the 12 much further in the series that I think are much better than the, the father. And not to say that I don't think that's, that's a good story. I just, I wrote that a long time ago and I think I'm a better writer now. I can't wait for people to to see what else this story has in store for them. And if sales are healthy of this first arc, then since you have so many ideas already put together and you have your art team, we could see possibly multiple arcs. Is that how you would do it? It would be like you know, five issues, five issues. Yeah, exactly. That's the big goal. That's what I really hope. If the first arc sells well, then we'll do more. I've written scripts for up to 25 issues, and there is more of that in the work. So I would hope that this is going to be a very long series. Now, you talked about being a better writer now than when you first started the series. And a while back, you did a panel at a convention starting a career as a writer in comics. Was that C2E2? That was in Indianapolis. Okay. So there's no secret that it's hard work. You have to write to be a good writer. Would you please give us some of the highlights of what you shared with people at the panel and what you've learned since you started writing the 12. (laughs) I think the first thing that I said at that panel was get a good day job. (laughs) (laughs) I I think people come to conventions and see the people sitting at the booths and they think like these people are making money off of these comics and, and paying their bills off of their comics. And it's like, Oh no, no, (laughs) you are mistaken. I have a nine to five job that I go to every day and I do this and other things in my life. That was the first piece of advice is, is don't quit your day job because this is uh, it's hard. It's hard to make it. The thing that I always tell people and it always feels like sort of it feels so obvious when I say it. But if you want to be a writer, you have to write. I think a lot of people don't like that answer. I, I give them that answer and some people kind of roll their eyes almost when I say it. But it's like. There's so many people come up to me at conventions and tell me about their amazing ideas and then go like super into depth about how great this idea is. And then I'll ask them like, have you written any of it? And they're like, oh, no. Well, it's like, okay, well, then you're, you're not a writer. You're just, you just have ideas. Like ideas aren't worth anything. Yeah, you have to execute. You got to make it happen. You can have all the ideas in the world. <laughs> in my opinion, there's no such thing as a good idea or a bad idea. It's all about execution. You could take Star Wars and, and have it written by some hack and it would be terrible. There's no good idea. It's it's just execution. Because a lot of the stuff that out there that is fantastic, they're not new ideas, you know? I mean, look at the Marvel movies. Those aren't new ideas. They're old. They're old comics. They're stories from the 70s that have been updated to now, and, and they're fantastic. They're getting a new audience now, and they've found a way to put it all together for the big screen and bring in new fans that probably have never read a comic book and hopefully now are reading a comic book to get more of it, hopefully. Exactly. Tell me about some of your other work that you 
did prior to the 12 or concurrent with. I have uh, some short stories that I've put out, fantasy and uh, sci-fi, horror, crime, comedy. And some of these stories I actually intend to push further. I mean, the, the main thing that stops me from pushing these stories is money, if I'm being totally honest, because I, whenever I work with an artist, I pay them a page rate and it adds up. So I make sure that I'm putting my resources into projects that I feel like are going to push my career further. Um, but I have a ton of stuff on the back burner. And then some of them are projects that I'm super excited about. Well, hopefully Alterna works out for you because at that price point, you know, they're doing very well getting new readers. I'm a new reader. I mean, it's so great when I can take like, you know, four books, add it to my list. And then, you know, I'm spending the cost of one book. <laughs> I mean, and I'm enjoying it, you know, and it has that old feel of the newsprint comics too, which I grew up reading. So uh, it's all good. I mean, <laughs> I have not been disappointed. A dollar fifty. I mean, you can barely get a snack for that. <laughs> yeah, and I haven't seen some modern comics with paper quality that good, even though it's not newsprint. It's like tissue paper because they've cut costs so much, tried to squeeze so much profit out of the book. I don't see this much with independent companies, the smaller ones. They usually put in the best paper and everything, but some of the bigger ones is like, oh my gosh, like I'm afraid I want to like wrinkle the cover just like taking it out of the bag. <laughs> yeah, I'm really excited to be working with Alterna. They're an indie company that's it's kind of on the rise. Like they're making a lot of moves and getting into some really interesting markets. And and the chief editor Peter Samedi busts his ass. He's a hustler, so <laughs> I'm glad to be working with him. That dude works really hard. I just have some fun questions for you before we wrap up. Uh, and one thing I want to just bring up because I read this, you had posted this, and I thought this was just I've never seen something like this before. It happened last year, but you said that you saw a lady on a train with a bag salad. Do you remember that? <laughs> I do. Oh, that, yeah. Do you want to tell the story? I can, I can tell you. I just I read it recently, so it's been a while. Yeah, no, I forgot about that. Yes, there was a lady. She had a one of those bagged salads, and she was eating it on the train. I remember. She just like dumped the dressing in there and shook it up? Yeah. <laughs> and then ate from the bag. Yeah. Like without a fork. Just like eating yeah. <laughs> it was I've never well, I've never seen anyone eat a salad with their hands for one, but eating it from the bag and on the train. But you know, Chicago trains are weird. <laughs> <laughs> that that's a rough diet when you're like, just give me the salad. I don't want a fork, just you know. <laughs> yeah, no. There's a lot of extra calories in the fork, so you don't want that. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, Questions that I ask all my guests. What do you like to do for rest and relaxation? I suppose I would say video games, but I, I try not to too much, actually. I spent so many years like deep into video games, and I, I've tried to pull back from it um, and do other things. So like outside of comics, I have a lot of creative endeavors, actually. I paint. I used to draw. Like I sketched so much when I was a kid, and and I'd never tried painting, and now I've gotten into that. And I love it. It's mostly like abstract stuff. I think I quit drawing because I felt like my technique wasn't good enough. And I, I felt like my skill at drawing anatomy wasn't good enough to make a career out of it. But now when I paint, I just paint abstract stuff. And it's like it lets me just kind of dip into creative side of me that writing doesn't really tap into. I've also gotten into music. I had never ventured into music growing up. Like about a year and a half or so, I started learning the 
piano and I was learning the guitar for a while and a couple friends of mine got together and we started a band. So I feel like I'm always doing something creative. <laughs> well, you're a creative person, so that makes perfect sense that you're painting, writing, playing music. They all kind of help each other. You know, they help all your skills and help you come up with new ideas. It doesn't matter what the genre is. They really do. And my next question, if you were stuck on a deserted island, hypothetical question, what would be the one book you would want to have with you to read? Be it something that you love and you've read again and again or something you're like, I want to read that. I just don't have the time now. <sighs> That's hard. I very, very rarely like reread things because I'm always looking for like the next great story. <laughs> Would I be able to cheat and, like, pick a series? <laughs> well, you know, you can do that if you want to make it a collection. If it's all of the same arc or series, that's fine. The stories that I'm reading right now is one of my absolute favorites. Um, it's this series called The Expanse. They actually made a TV show out of it, and the show is pretty good, too. Um, but it's, like, this big sci-fi story that's set a couple hundred years in the future, but Humans have ventured out into space and colonized uh, Mars and set up colonies out on like the asteroid belts. There's this whole political tension between the people who live out in the belts who are sort of the third world of this book. They kind of get stepped on and, and I love it. It's so deeply political and like it feels real, like it feels like a real world. You know, it, it's stories about like just ordinary people well, okay, they're not ordinary people. They're, you know, one of them's a cop, and one of them's like a. Well, he was he was a dude who was on a ice hauler. It was like a ship that takes ice from planets to to get water out to the belt. It, it all feels real because everything in the book. There's so much detail put into um, the ordinary things of life. How do they get food? How do they get water? Like, how has their language? changed living away from earth for so long and like all these like various cultures like melded into this belter culture what are the tensions with earth and mars and it's so good <laughs> yeah i'll have to check that out because i started to watch the series on sci-fi um mm -hmm. and i didn't get through because other things distracted me and pulled me away but i think it's something i'm gonna have to revisit now especially in light of how you set that up you know the old adage that the book is always better the books are better i think the show is pretty good it does a good job but the books just have so much more in them they're so dense it's amazing how they're able to make it like such down-to-earth characters that are so relatable even though they're so far in the future but also like melding in amazing like political stuff and all this detail about their technology always keeping it grounded in the characters now that i think about it i think that's what i strive for in my writing Maybe that's why I like it so much. <laughs> now, my next question is also hypothetical. Alterna is going to make an action figure of you. Me? Of you. <laughs> what would Whoa. be what would be your accessories? Oh, man. Well, a, a leather jacket. It needs a leather jacket for sure. That thing is uh, iconic. I went to a con in Detroit, and I wore my jacket almost the whole weekend. I took it off when I showered. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose a gas mask. I don't I don't have one. I feel like I should. Okay. All right. Leather jacket and a gas mask. That could be your look. <laughs> Sounds pretty intimidating. I don't yeah, I don't mean right. to be. <laughs> and my final question's fairly easy. It's uh not hypothetical. What is your beverage of choice when you're resting and relaxing? Mm, scotch. I like fancy whiskey. Now, is there one that you prefer? Is there one that you always go to? Or do you try different kinds? Uh, I like to try different stuff. I tend to be an adventurous 
eater and drinker. I, I'm, I enjoy trying new things. I do have some staples, though. I like Scottish scotch, like peaty, super smoky scotch. There's one called Ardbeg that I love, and it tastes like a small house fire. <laughs> That's quite a description. <laughs> yeah. Your book is coming out in February through Alterna. The release date is February 21st. One of five, $1.50, folks. Black and white on newsprint. We actually went with a red tint. It's more like black and red or white and red. Oh, cool. All right. Somehow it, it, it looks better in the newsprint. But um, but yeah, $1.50. I look forward to seeing it, and I'm definitely going to pick it up. Even though I've read the book, I want to see it in this format. I think it's going to look good. I'm excited about it. I enjoy talking to you. Uh, we'll, we'll talk again sometime. You can talk about uh, Anthony Bourdain and Queens of Stone Age and all that other stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you did your research, man. I, really I did. That. I did. I always do my research. <laughs> I am obsessed with Queens of the Stone Age. I have their, I don't know if it's their first album. It was the one that Dave Grohl was on. And it wasn't like, they really didn't make a big deal out of it. You just kind of see his picture, that that image of him on the cover. And I was like, yeah. And it was really good. Dave Grohl is so humble (laughs) for how amazing he is. Oh, he is. Like, in my opinion, he's one of the best drummers ever. His timing, his rhythm, like, he is like a machine. Like, he is just so solid with the way he drums. It's amazing. He also plays guitar and he sings and he writes and he composes and he. He has a studio, like where he records other people and produces. It's amazing. He's incredibly talented. I know you, you like Anthony Bourdain, and I've watched. I watched the show too, and I've seen the one where he goes to Chicago. If you have a chance to check it out, I interviewed Joel Rose, who's a friend of his. Really? Yeah, they are. Um, they're putting out a comic book through Dark Horse Comics called Hungry Ghosts, because Anthony did Kill Jiro and Kill Jiro, like a prequel, and now he's going to do a book with Joel Rose, uh, Hungry Ghosts. And actually, Joel was the guy he came to with his first comic. Anthony came to with his first comic trying to get it published. And he was instrumental in getting him his first article published and then leading to his first book deal. Didn't realize that Anthony Bourdain made comics. Oh, well, that yeah. Okay, Joel Rose. We do talk a lot about Anthony in his early days. Yeah, that sounds amazing. I, I love Anthony Bourdain. It might be my favorite TV show. The first one I saw, he was in Iceland, and I watched it. With my wife, and I was like, I don't see why people like this guy. He seems really grumpy, you know. <laughs> yes. and, and he's like a by himself in the corner, like no one's really hanging around him. And then I watched more episodes, and I was like, Oh, well, of course. Now I see the problem. You know, he was he was freezing to death, and he was eating like fermented shark tail, and of course he was unhappy. <laughs> it was just snow everywhere. That's not his environment, you know. <laughs> well, he he is kind of grumpy, but I like I like people who are a little grumpy he's he's a good character he's a good personality because for a travel show it's all about the host they've got to be a good host i mean you've got to have somebody that's interesting otherwise it's just you know flyover of spain castles and you know snooze i see those things in public television like it's a flyover travel show and i'm like oh my god (laughs) i can't stand that (laughs) i like him because he's honest you know i and I, i feel like there's so many uh hosts of those shows who like they're putting on like their TV personality and it's not like their real self. With Tony Bourdain, it's just like this is that's who he is. Oh he's yeah. Just, oh, absolutely. He's, who he is. And he's never he's <laughs> never putting on like a persona. It's just him. He's the same, I'm sure, in person as he is on the show. I guess that's the I never met him, but that's the feeling I get. It's the same yeah. guy. Yep. <laughs>
Yeah, 81 is Joel Rose. And we talk about Anthony Bourdain and about him being, you know, starting out as a dishwasher and a cook and the kind of person he is and trying to get his first comic book published. And then eventually Joel's wife looked over his work and got him an article in The New Yorker and then a book deal. Kitchen Confidential. And then he took off from there. Joel Rose. Here it is. 81. Joel Rose on Hungry Ghosts. He's a really interesting guy to uh, interview. He worked as a, a waiter, and he had a really good story that I just kind of stepped into. <laughs> so when you listen oh, yeah. to it, yeah, you'll like it. Because he, he met, I said, have you met any characters in your days as a waiter? Anybody that really stands out in mind? And he had a really good story. So <laughs> I'll tease it with that. Well, Patrick, <laughs> thank you for uh, being on Creator Talks. Thanks for having me. Sorry for the abrupt end there. Um, what we did was discuss many things after the interview, which Patrick said, yeah, fine, include that about Queens of the Stone Age and Anthony Bourdain's show. So I added that in because it was a good conversation and I thought you might enjoy hearing that. Plus, Hungry Ghost is coming out the week after this podcast. So, you know, might as well bring it up again in case you might have missed it. It's something you might want to check out and go back and listen to the episode and hear all the details from Joel himself. Next week on Thursday, join me for my interview with... Cynthia Von Bueller. She is the author and the artist on Minky Woodcock, The Girl Who Handcuffed Houdini, being published by Titan Comics and Hard Case Crime. She is a fascinating person. We had a lot to talk about, all sorts of things beyond the book. So please join me for that conversation and see my recommended reading article from last week on my website, creatortalks.com, Minky Woodcock, The Girl Who Handcuffed Houdini. Thank you for joining me for Creator Talks this week. The show is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, YouTube, and also on Amazon Echo and Dot devices. Just say, Alexa, play podcast Creator Talks to hear the latest episode. In addition, you can listen to the show and follow it through Podbean. Your feedback is greatly appreciated, so please rate and review on iTunes if you like the show or an episode that you heard. Your ratings and reviews go a long way to helping the show, and I can't thank you enough for taking a bit of time to do that. For your convenience, in the show notes of each podcast, I have a link to my iTunes page where you can rate and review the show and see the entire list of shows available. If you haven't heard them all, take a look through. There are living legends and -and up-and-coming comic creators. Tell family and friends who like comics and comic book creators about the show. And to subscribe. The content is free. Just as valued are your comments and feedback. You can reach me through Facebook and Twitter at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod. You can also reach out to me by email. You can find that at my website, creatortalks.com. At the website, you will also find blog posts, reviews of books that I have read that you might want to read too, my catalog of podcasts, and videos and other written articles on the website creatortalks.com. A hearty thank you to all my guests. It is an honor and a privilege for you to make time to be on the show and talk to me about your work. It is your knowledge and insight into the creative process that makes the show so unique. My thanks also goes out to my family who makes this show possible, especially my executive co-producer, Mrs. Calloway. I'll be back each and every Thursday with a new interview. For Creator Talks, I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. Until next time.